everyone. Welcome to another uh, Your Amigos ESMO podcast. This is potentially our most exciting ESMO podcast. Tom and I are here at uh, Mikhail Vanderheiden, and we're talking about the really transformative frontline data uh, presented at ESMO this year, two large phase threes that really changed the landscape of, of bladder cancer. Mikhail, let's start with you in the Checkmate 901 study. Um, if you could just maybe explain, you know, a little bit about what was done and, and the background, um, and then we'll start diving into results. Yeah, thanks uh, for having me again, Brian. Um, so uh, the Checkmate 901 study is a study for first-line advanced urothelial cancer. Um, this study focuses on the uh, cisplatin eligible population. Um, and in this study, uh, patients were randomized to receive either standard uh, cisgem uh, or cisplatin gem cytobin uh, every three weeks together with nivolumab uh, for a maximum of six cycles followed by nivolumab monotherapy. Um, the study uh, had a follow-up of uh, 33.6 months when it read out, uh, and the primary endpoints uh, were overall survival and progression-free survival. And the study uh, met both of its endpoints. So uh, overall survival was uh, positive with a HES ratio of 0 0.78. Uh, and progression-free survival was uh, positive as well with a HES ratio of 0 0.72. And why so, so impressive PFS and OS data? There have been other studies that have tried to combine immune therapy with chemotherapy up front that have failed. So what do you think is different about this study? Is it because it focused on platinum eligible? Is it something else? What, what made this study succeed when others have failed? Yeah, so that's, of course, a, a super interesting question. And um, uh, we had actually already sort of discarded uh, uh, the, the, theory, the theory that chemotherapy and, and, and checkpoint inhibition would work well in urothelial cancer. So if you look at those other studies that were done, so that's the, the Keynotes uh, 361 study uh, with the, uh, the same chemo regimen with or without pembrolizumab and the Invigo 130, which uh, was uh, chemotherapy with or without uh, atezolizumab. Those two studies included uh, all platinum patients, so cisplatin and carboplatin, and were uh, negative for the primary endpoints, although Invigo 130 still had an advantage for PFS. So there was a little bit of signal there still. But when you look a bit closer to those two trials, especially in Vigo 130, and, and you uh, separate the patients who received cisplatin, you see that uh, the difference was actually uh, better in, uh, in both studies in, in PFS and for in Vigo 130 in, uh, in OS. Now it's it's a bit difficult to say if this you know how much biology is behind there. There's some data to suggest that cisplatin could be uh, you know could have more immune induction than carboplatin, um, but you know that's all all sort of circumstantial data and and we really don't know. But but actually the data that we present here are quite in line with those other studies. So that's what I was going to ask: Is it that carbo somehow is is immunosuppressive, if you will, if it's a bad partner, or is it just that the patient who is fit enough for cis is more immunocompetent? Yeah. So so both both uh, uh, the, the, those things could be true. Um, I think generally these are patients who are able to be enrolled in in a large uh, phase three trial, so they will be reasonably fit and often the, the criterion to give uh, carboplatin is based on renal function and not, not necessarily on fitness. Um, 
I think the, the data is there. Matt Gelski did some interesting work on, on in vivo 130 to, to show that uh, um, uh, cisplatin had, had better immune, immunogenic effects. However, of course, that was a trial where they already knew uh, that cisplatin uh, combined better in that trial with, with the immune checkpoint blockade. So I don't, don't know if that's the definite yeah. truth, but definitely there's, there's a lot to find out here as a, uh, still. Mikhail, a couple of questions for you. The first is in the 361 trial, the PEMBRO trial, the PFS in the cisplatin cohort was also good at about 0 0.70, 0 0.75, but there was no, sorry, 0 0.65, but there was no OS benefit. That was, uh, that was, uh, that was not seen. That was 0 0.8. Um, why, why was, why is nivolumab working and PEMBRO not working? Or is it just the fact that there are more similarities and differences between these and it's statistical noise? Yeah, I think that that's, uh, to claim that there is a big difference between nivolumab and pembrolizumab is, is really, uh, really difficult. So I think, you know, it's always difficult in hindsight to say why some trials are positive and, and others are not. I think out of the three trials we're discussing here, the, the data that, that we are showing is quite in line uh, with both trying trials, more with Invigo 130 maybe than with, with the keynote trial, but I think the differences are not huge. Um, so I think this this can have you know could, could be because of trial design or well the, the trial design was mostly the same but mostly because it's fo focusing on cisplatin eligible patients I guess. But that was the cisplatin cohort. Just to repeat that, zero point six seven PFS, zero point eight eight OS. Yeah. Is that because of subsequent therapy or more of that or is that so okay? So the second question I got is maintenance of valumab reduces the risk of death by twenty five percent. And here, the risk of death is reduced by 28%, and patients got essentially maintenance nivolumab. Is this all being driven by the maintenance period and got nothing to do with the combination? Yeah, so that's of course the the, the big question that everybody's gonna going to ask me and uh, is is um, you know weighing in on. I think it's very important to uh, realize that the Avalumab trial is not the same type of trial as what we're doing here. We're doing the full first line. Uh, population, and we really don't know what kind of selection of the full population ended up in the Javelin uh, Avalumab trial. Um, so basically, in the in the maintenance trial, by by sort of natural selection, you select out the best patients, and and uh, you don't really know how that compares. Um, I think you did a, a statistical modeling to see how much gain in the median OS this would actually lead to. Um, uh, if you would have a frontline uh, population and then it was much more modest than the uh, results in the study. So I think uh, that's an important point. As I think in this, the trial, if you look deeper into the data uh, that we're presented, uh, presenting, is that um, actually we see in Checkmate 901 very deep and uh, durable responses. So this, the rate of complete remission is, is doubled. And we actually see that these, these complete remissions are also achieved very fast, so already at the first evaluation. Um, and especially the tail of the curve for our study looks very promising. And I think th these types of things are, are quite difficult to compare to the, to the Avedimob maintenance trial. And it looks like only 10, less than 10% of patients had progression as their best response on the, the Neva plus chemo arm. So, so most patients completed, tell me if this is true or not, most patients completed their chemo plus immune therapy, and then most patients would have gone on to nivolumab maintenance. Is that correct? I think, I think it's more complicated than that, Brian, because what happens is that's the best response, but patients right. can't progress during the whole of chemotherapy, and that's the first scan and the second scan. 
So you can't have um, the big problem with urothelial cancer is not the initial response, which is usually good. The problem with urothelial cancer is cycle four, five and six can be a real battle. Some patients can't get it in because of toxicity. And actually about a third of the patients have progression of disease during that period of time. So best response is not best response minus right. the remainder is not the, the, the value man proportion. Right. It, well, it, that was my question is what is what is that percentage that went on? I Oh, you go, you go. It's your podcast. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to stop answering the questions. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, well, you're involved in the trial as well, so I can imagine. Um, so the, the Nevo plus Gemsys indeed had 74% of patients uh, completing the Nevo plus Gemsys component of the trial. And then the Gemsys uh, group had only 55% of patients completing that first part of their chemotherapy. Uh, so indeed, there is a 20% difference in those numbers, and and that difference seems to be mainly caused by uh, a different proportion uh, in, of disease progression causing uh, discontinuation. So you could make an argument the initial immune therapy component allows more patients to make it to maintenance, right? You just said there's what 20% difference of patients who would have made it to that immune component. Did I hear that correctly? Yeah, that's correct. Um, of course, uh, uh, if you stop after the fourth cycle, you could theoretically also go on to to maintenance therapy. So we don't know exactly where that point lies, but it seems that that your statement is indeed correct. And before we, Tom, before we go to you and the 302 data, Mikhail, anything about toxicity, anything um, that was surprising or limited therapy in the immune uh, combination? Yeah, so actually in terms of toxicity, I think uh, I was posit positively surprised. So uh, the treatment-related AEs in both groups were fairly similar. Of course, patients in the nivolumab plus GEM-CIS arm were treated for a much longer period of time because they had the nivolumab monotherapy arm and their treatment-related AEs were slightly higher, but there was no uh, important safety signal. Actually, the immune-mediated uh, events that we saw were uh, quite modest. There was not a lot of uh, grade three, four toxicity, and there were no immune-related deaths on study. Tom, let's jump over to the data you presented on uh, EV302. I think we're familiar with this combination. Obviously, there's been single arm and the small randomized, you know, that showed high response rates and a lot of excitement around this trial. Why don't you walk us through? This was EV Pembro versus chemo cis or carbo. So this was a, a broader population than the Checkmate study we just heard about but um, impressive results. Why don't you just walk us through the highlights? So unfortunately, Mabodotin is an ADC targeting Nectin-4, um, and it has single agent activity in heavily pretreated patients. We all know pembrolizumab uh, also has activity. Single agent pembrolizumab struggled frontline um, because we didn't get in control enough patients. And pembrolizumab plus chemotherapy um, showed problems because together they appeared to be somewhat antagonistic. And so, um, the, uh, and a number of investigators uh, from the US were involved in combining these two drugs together uh, to get accelerated FDA approval with a 68% response rate in the cisplatin ineligible population. And so we did a randomized phase three in the unselected frontline patients. So this is GEMCIS, GEMCARBO. The NEVO trial was just the cisplatin cohort of patients, um, an 800 patient large randomized phase three, um, classic frontline therapy patient characteristics in line with expectations, randomized against chemotherapy, GEMSYS or GEMCARBO. Um, patients were allowed to have Evalumab uh, in the trial. 
Um, but at the beginning of the study, Evalimab wasn't available, only became available during the period of the study. Um, and uh, what we showed was, you know, really quite striking results. Um, the PFS in unselected patients was 0.45, so a 55% reduction in the risk of progression. And the hazard ratio uh, for overall survival, 0.47, so a 53% reduction in the risk. And the landmark PFS and the landmark OS, and the OS is a bit unstable, but, you know, we're pushing beyond, you know, we're pushing beyond 30 months um, our median OS. Um, What's the, the median follow-up time, did you say? Median follow-up 17 months, so there's quite 17. a lot of censoring okay. about that yeah. time, and that's why it becomes a bit unstable. But if you look at the shape of the curves, they go apart at the beginning. You might remember the chemotherapy immune therapy tri trials, including the nivolumab study, the curves only really start to go apart after about six months. These go apart right from the beginning and they stay apart. Um, and the landmark values, as I said before, are really impressive. And the median values um, showing a real transformation in the disease, you know, over the greater than 12 month PFS, um, which we haven't really seen before, more like six months in the past, doubling in PFS. So it's, um, I think the from an efficacy perspective, these are in my opinion, somewhat transformative. And the benefit is irrespective of cisplatin. So the cisplatin cohort and the and the, PEM, and the carboplatin cohort has a ratio is both about 0 0.5 as well. Uh, and of course, it, independent of pdl one status, it seems to work in visceral metastasis. It's also important to mention that 30% of these patients got maintenance of valumab in the control arm and um, over 60% of patients got immune therapy of some description from the control arm. So the progression patients, much more, it's much more representative of a current standard of care. And you might say more than 30% of patients should have maintenance of Valumab, and I'm happy to say it could go up you know, to 50%, but, but that can't account for these 0.4 figures. It's just yeah. kind of So Tom, I think your, your comment on shape of the curves is interesting. So in Checkmate 901, we see PFS curves that are immune therapy PFS curves, right? They sort of overlap, overlap, and then the immune uh, regimen sort of splits out, if you will. But in in 302, the PFS curves split early and stay split. So is that would, to me, say there's something different about EV. There's different about an ADC up front. Yeah, and one's got zero, one's 0 0.78 and the other's 0 0.47. So that's a, those numbers are very different from each other. And one had quite a lot of Evalumab and the other one didn't. So I think the EV PEMRO data kind of looks significantly better, in my opinion. And I, I guess that's my question. You think that's because it's it's quite obviously because of the EV component, right? So there's something about the ADC component that's different than just giving chemotherapy, putting the Pembro aside for a second. Yeah, I mean, look, to do the broader picture, when we look back in time at this, we did three trials with chemotherapy and immune therapy. They all gave, as a combination, they all gave marginal results. The hazard ratios were all in the 0.7s and 0.8s. Um, you know, there was one 0.67 PSS in that realized. But the reality is 0.7 and 0.8. There is some benefit. A lot of that benefit is being driven by maintenance therapy. And there is an antagonism. There's more similarities between the Pembro curve. And Tom, the and, response yeah, rate nearly 70%. It's been remarkably consistent response rate across every study of EV Pembro, right? It's yeah, always it's, in that high 60s and, in, and a nearly 30% CRA. Yeah, that CR rate looks outstanding as well. I think, you know, obviously I'm presenting it, so I'm probably a little bit biased, but we haven't, you know, bladder cancer historically, um, we, you know, median survival 12 months, median, sorry, median PFS 12 months, 
sorry, mean OS 12 months, PFS six months, and yeah. the vast majority of patients dying of their disease quickly. And here we've got a CR rate of about 30%. Um, that looks very different from what we saw with chemotherapy. And Sam, how much, how much EV do you need to give? We know that drug can be hard to give long-term, right? So is this, is it, is it sort of EV induction, if you will, and then Pembro maintenance? Or do you think EV long-term is possible? So great- Necessary. Grade three or four toxicity in 55% of patients with EV Pembro and 70% of patients with chemotherapy. But it's important to recognize that the toxicity is different between the two, and EV Pembro is not the easiest combination to give, and the treatment's given to progression of disease. Um, chemotherapy is not particularly easy to give either. We learned how to give it, and it took us a long time. You know, the neutropenia was a problem, the nausea was a problem, the renal failure was a problem. So chemotherapy in bladder cancers a hard, a hard task. And actually, the fact that we can now replace that uh, with EV Pembro is really exciting because patients are living twice as long, and that's really important. And thirty percent are getting a CR. But we do need to we do need to educate as a group, including myself, more about how we give the combination. The macular papular rash at the beginning is important. If you get that, you need to stop the drugs and modify and 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 reduce, reduce, and have time off treatment. Peripheral neuropathy. Um, continues with time and gets worse with time. So you have to keep a close eye on that. It doesn't score, cause much interstitial lung disease, which is great. You know, there's a little bit, bit of trans, transaminitis and there's a few, um, there is some fatigue, of course. Um, but it's not an, you know, it, it's a regime which we, which in my experience, we can we can give safely and, and easily. The question is how long you should go for. And, and right. I don't know so the answer to that question. So do you agree or disagree with this statement? In, in this EV Pembro regimen, the EV is more important up front and the Pembro is more important later. I think there's a spectrum of that, but I think in the end, that sounds like a really imp- important statement, doesn't it? I don't think, you know, after, and I'm interested in what Michael That's the first time you've said something I've said is important. Thank you, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> Michael, uh, back to you. So Tom Tom just said that his data is better than yours. That's what I heard. Yeah. That. His well, well, presentation was better and his think, data is better. How well, would you respond? Mikel's the last author on the EV Pembroke study. <laughs> so I, I think it's okay. fair to say that both it's, it's our data, it's everyone's data, including importantly oh, the patients. I mean, okay. so. Uh, yeah, so, so I think that, that's, you know, that's the main things. For, for many decades, we've been treating patients always with chemotherapy up front. Uh, the, uh, for some patients, this works, but for the vast majority of patients, you know, they will succumb to their disease. I think. It's an extremely exciting time for for bladder cancer to have two large phase three trials uh, readouts uh, now and 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 actually replace the combination of only chemotherapy. And of course, these the, the trial data from uh, EV three hundred two look uh, amazing, and I'm super fortunate to be part of that. Um, and you know, I'm not gonna gonna sit here and try to you know sh- shoot holes in in such an amazing trial. Mikael, let me ask you a question, if I may. Um, in now those healthcare environments where EV Pembro won't be available for a number of years, and we know that's been the case with some, you know, combinations. I know, for example, Ipinevo has only just recently become available in Spain in kidney cancer. For those who have not got access to it immediately, but may have access to nivolumab, do you think cisplatin nivolumab is a new standard of care in cisplatin-eligible patients? Um, or do you think actually it doesn't really matter too much whether you give maintenance of Alimab? I think, I think it is for cisplatin-eligible patients. Um, I think our data is in line with uh, previous, uh, previous trials uh, that this combination works. 
Um, and I think if, if you look at this data um, and especially look at the complete remissions that are reached and how durable these complete remissions are, I think um, uh, that that for a patient is this would be of interest to to try to be in the, in that group uh, that has a, you know a deep durable response and um, that after two uh, two years of treatment, uh, 23.5 percent is still um uh without progression so i I, th I think as a patient you want to be in that group so i think uh, uh this would be the standard of care for these patients if if either of you are seeing a bladder cancer patient a frontline patient tomorrow and it could be with either regimen what are you quoting them for a cure rate you're sitting there and say hey doc what's my chances of being cured with this regimen pick your favorite what what number can you quote them so uh, my take on this is at the moment the follow-up durations of these trials are not really long enough um, and to, okay. to start but, but, saying cures. I think, well, we, so you, I think you, what if, we... If a patient asks, hey, doc, can I be cured of this disease? Is your answer yes or no? I think there are patients with long-term durable CRs and it's okay. 30%. And it's 30 but I'm, I'm a patient, Tom. I don't know what long-term durable CR means. Um, can I be I cured think, not? Yes or no? I don't know the answer to that, but oh, I, what I can, what, no, wait, wait, wait. But, so what I can tell you, but what I can tell you is that I think EV Pembro has transformed the landscape in this. And we took, obviously took part in the study. And no, I totally agree, but, but and, I'm a wait, patient. Wait, wait, I, I want to know whether I can be cured or not. I, so what I can tell you is there's a group of patients who have had EV Pembro who down the line are doing much, much better than we saw previously. And there, is a, and there is a possibility that we're seeing durable CRs, which translates to cure. Okay. You know, I don't, I've never Tom's liked CR. Tom's not answering Macau's. No, so I'll I do, I do, I've never liked CR. I've never liked CR. In the kidney cancer field, I didn't like the word CR not either. Not CR. I'm a patient, Tom. Talk to me. Like, can I be cured of this disease or not? I think for the first time, the answer is maybe we can. I know Matt and I know maybe. other people have said cisplatin was curing patients or a subgroup. I don't think it was a big enough group of patients in my experience. Okay. I'm I think this is transparent because you're not giving me answers, Mikhail. I imagine you would have made your choice up some time ago on that. <laughs> Can <laughs> I be? <laughs> yes or no? And if the answer is yes, what are my chances? Is it 2%, 10%? Give me a number to hang on to. So I've, what I tell my patients in general uh, with bladder cancer, if they're in, you know, a prognostic group that is not terrible. So if they're not a, uh, you know, a performance that is uh, too, or, you know, have, have liver a lot of liver metastases or bone metastases, but, you know, in, in a good condition and have um, a lymph node uh, a disease and maybe some lung metastases, I tell them there is a chance that you will have long-term remission. If I would have been a surgeon, I would have called it cure, but I'm uh, a bit more careful about that. <laughs> um, so I think there is a chance, although it's a very small group, but I think patients can keep hope with urothelial cancer that, a, that they might small, be in that group. I actually, so I as a matter of fact, I've been for the last few years, I have been referring patients back to the to their uh, primary care physician uh, after they've been in a com, um, you know free of disease for five years after discontinuing uh, checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, so I'm quite confident there is a small so group that's of the patients. Case, you've clearly seen patients who are cured, right, or in long-term remission, whatever term you want to use. Yeah. But we're, we're not sure what that number is. Understanding there's limited follow-up, et cetera. But Tom, if I look at the 302 curves. Well, I think for, for Checkmate 901, um, you know, that, that's, that's I think, one of the at least strong points still that, that it has quite a lot of follow-up, so almost three years. Yeah. Uh, and I think what we're seeing in the PFS curves is that at two years, it's 23.5%, and at 
does seem that that curve is sort of stabilizing around, uh, you know, just above 20%. If that will last for five or 10 years, I don't know, but uh, it is stabilizing there, whereas the curve for chemo alone uh, uh, is, is slightly under uh, 10% and still uh, going down and a maybe, bit. And maybe heading to zero, the chemo curve alone, obviously we'll see over time, but um, if I were to answer that question, this is a lot of speculation, obviously, because of the follow-ups, et cetera. I think the, the answer is yes, right? We can cure metastatic bladder cancer with one of these regimens. I think that number is going to be around 20%. I mean, I mean, I think the PFS, if you look at the PFS at three years, and I would, oh, well, three years, look at the PFS at two years, 24-month PFS is over 40% currently. On yeah. the, uh, so I agree with you. I just think we, I just think we need to be careful about jumping the gun with this a little bit. But I think we're making a. I think that EV Pembro is going to make a big difference in frontline metastatic disease. No question. I'm, I'm only pushing you both because these are the questions that, as you both well know, that patients ask, right? And, and I think obviously, even if there's caveats around the answer and all the things that we talk about with each other, patients don't get that, right? They want. Is it at least possible? I think we'd all agree that long-term remissions are possible. We might not agree on the number. We just don't know the number yet. But I, I think that's, a, as you say, Tom, a transformative change in bladder cancer when it was chemo alone that I think it was possible, but it was pretty fairly rare. But now it's, it's obviously much less rare, even if we don't know the number. So let me ask you both a question. We touched on this sort of the maintenance of Valimab, which you know developed during the time of these trials accrual, so it wasn't uniformly applied. Do you think that matters? Are people going to harp on that or... The results are so good that 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 doesn't really matter. I think I that it's know. yeah. I, I think it's um, uh, there's a lot of uh, you know noise about and and nobody really knows the answer. How many people actually do get maintenance Avelumab at this point? I mean, if you're um, uh, selling Avelumab, you might say, well, there's you know 60% of patients uh, do not have progression uh, after their six cycles, so they could all go onto Avelumab and and reach the benefit that we've seen in Javelin. But I think that's mm. that's not really true. I think we're seeing in, in real world data that it's about 30% in some of the first series. Uh, and I also think that if you actually would have would be able to give everybody who uh, who you know who goes through four to six cycles and doesn't have progression available, I, I think that probably the benefit would would lessen a bit. Um, so I think it, and, and that makes it very difficult to, you know, copy paste that benefit from the study uh, onto a, a true first line study. Um, I think in both trials, you know, the, the, there was access to uh, checkpoint inhibition. I think um, in both trials for the control arm, there was absolutely no inhibition for, for patients on the control arm to get checkpoint inhibitor. Uh, but obviously, because um, Checkmate 901 has recruited earlier, Avelimab was not um, uh, available as much. This has mostly just been second-line checkpoint inhibition, but a proportion of patients also got checkpoint inhibition uh, after their chemotherapy. And my take on it, Brian, is that the hazard ratios for chemotherapy, displaying chemotherapy and immune therapy, the OS hazard ratios across the three trials for a kind of meta-analysis probably comes in at about 0.80. And so it's about a 20% reduction in risk of death. Maintenance of Valumab has a 25% reduction in the risk of death. Um, uh, but that only starts from the completion of chemotherapy. So that 25%, you know, you could dilute that down conservatively and call that, you know, a 10% reduction overall when you account for it's not all patients and it doesn't start immediately that would be conservative so a 20 percent reduction 
sort of chemo combo trials and take away that 10% of the valumab, and that comes in about an overall 10% reduction in risk of death. And now there'll be people who disagree with me on that. And you could push the numbers one way. I think some people yeah. say a valumab has more than 10%, and other people say the chemotherapy cis plan is more than 20%. But, you know, and there'll be other people the other way who said a valumab is less than that, you know. And then, so, yeah. but that, for me, that's how it pans out. And, and so that's probably a 10%. The combination at the beginning probably mm-hmm. improves survival by about 10% with chemotherapy. And, and, and that probably isn't enough to carry the day um, in a big, you know, big environment having said that the nice parts of, of the d- data Mikel presented i think that 20 percent cr rate and the higher response rate i think that both they both are relevant i think the weakest part of that data is the progression free survival curve i think the fact it doesn't go apart initially is concerning but i think the higher response rate and the higher cr is you'd want to be one of those cr patients wouldn't you and you've got no chance of being one of those CR patients if you don't have it. So I can see that being attractive. And I agree with Mikel in that respect. It could easily become a standard of care. I think the EV Pembro data is different. I think 30% of patients had a Valumab. That's a much higher percentage. And I think the OS hazard ratio is 0.47. So if you take away that 10%, which if you wanted to, and you know, on a conservative yeah. day, 30%, you're still in the mid 0. Point or low 0.5s. And, and you know, 30% of Valumab, that's not bad. I mean, in the real world, that's probably what most people get. So that was your long way of saying you don't think it matters. I think that, well, <laughs> I think it probably matters a little bit more for the chemo combos than it does for about 83 yeah. Ember. I'm teasing you. All right, let, let's wrap this up. So uh, I'll give you each a final comment, Tom. We'll, we'll start with you. Just, I don't know, anything else that's interesting, a subset, uh, where you want to go from here. I don't know, a- any sort of tidbit that you're taking away, obviously, aside from the high-level data that we talked about. Um, Mikhail, myself, and a number of other individuals who spend a lot of time trying to replace frontline chemotherapy, it's, you know, it really has been very, very difficult. We've had many good goes at it. We've, many trials have failed along the way. And it's been 40 years of frontline chemotherapy. In fact, it's all I've ever known. And the fact that we've managed to replace that is quite, I think it's a big deal. And I think that it's going to be really good for patients. I think they're going to live longer, as you said. And I think also the combination is going to be moved earlier in the disease setting. So um, I think it's a big day for you, Athelia Pence. Agreed. Mikhail, last word to you. Now, I fully agree. This, uh, you know, this is a fantastic moment for for uh, urothelial cancer in the first place, of course, for the patients, but also for us as uh, as investigators. And I think, you know, the 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 big gains that are that can still be made in in the in the new adjuvant and in the perioperative setting. I think also, um, you know, something that maybe to add something that hasn't been mentioned yet. Um, I think there's a, a there's a lot to win for bladder cancer uh, with these new. Uh, induction, you know, systemic induction therapies that are so effective uh, to get much more bladder sparing because we're still doing yeah. sur- enormous surgery on a lot of patients. And I think, you know, with these therapies, we can really reduce that. And I think, um, look, as you both alluded to, moving the both these regimens earlier in the neoadjuvant space and the bladder sparing space might be where the real impact is in terms of more patients, number one, but also, a, you know, elimination of cystectomy or reduction would be a major, major advantage. So congrats to both of you. I agree. Both data sets are transformative. I think it's going to be one of those moments that we remember, you know, where we were when we heard the data because it's going to change the way we we treat advanced bladder cancer. So congrats to you both. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Take care.